The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. Welcome to another episode of Create Your Shot. I am Tyler Laurie and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Chris Smalls Angelos. Smalls, we missed the Final Four this past weekend. Talked a little bit about it uh, on our interview this week, but how you doing without the opportunity to go to the Final Four and, and meet all your boys? Oh, man. You know, really missing out on that experience. It is a good time, especially if you got a good crew and a good group that you can kind of connect with. And honestly, last year I probably had the most fun because I wasn't really – I don't think any of us were, you know, looking for a job or looking to <laughs> sniff a guy's ass. So – um, it was a great time. <laughs> I love that part of it. I can just bounce bar to bar, food, people, and just talk like regular life. Like I have no agenda, which I'm glad. I, I like that way better. Yeah, they should do that. Two different Final Fours. The agenda Final Four, like that's like the Adidas oh, yeah. party and stuff. And then the, the no days. agenda. <laughs> There's an agenda day. day. And if you get caught non-agenda day having an agenda, you get arrested. Oh, my God. <laughs> It's just like it's just like breaking social distancing rules. Yeah. If you get caught, you're trying to you know you're trying to make a connection, a genuine connection on a day that's not for that. Yeah, I wouldn't be going to any agenda days. I, I agree, Smalls. I I was not going to go to the Final Four this year. We already we knew that already. But uh, it is always a sad day when you don't get to go and you hear the stories. And I'm a little disappointed that you weren't coming back this week and telling me a bunch of stories about Saturday night and. Uh, where was it? It was Atlanta this year. Yeah, Saturday night in Atlanta. Because we already have had some crazy Saturday nights in Atlanta. So Yeah, it would have been definitely been fun, but you, know, you skip the hangover, you get the body right, you get ready for uh for summer beach season, baby. That's about all it takes. Yeah, we and there might be a beach season. We we don't know. You know, like I said, our interview this week, TJ Tibbs, College of Staten Island Dolphins head coach. We kind of joked about what day of quarantine it is. I, I don't actually even know. It's not day 500. It's got to be like day 24 or 25. But TJ was nice enough, kind enough to join us. And a uh, really fun interview, really interesting interview too. TJ, former player at CSI, played for Tony Petosa, who we ended up replacing. Not really replacing, like Tony stepped down and TJ got the job. But the school's also going to the ECC. They're jumping from Division Three to Division Two. So you know, a lot of stuff to unpack in this interview, Smalls. And I thought TJ was, you know, he was awesome. Like he, he kind of went into the weeds on everything we asked. Yeah. What an interesting transition it is. It's, you know, unlike the division two to division one job that I've seen you talk to Joe Gallo about way back when uh, Mary Mack going to the NEC, it's division three, division two, you're going from no scholarships having an opportunity to have scholarships and what those look like. It's not a guarantee, right? D1, you know, you're going to get X amount. What is it? 13 or something like that. Yeah, you get 13 D2. It's like, okay, how are we going to piece this thing together? There's scholarships in place. Do we have to fundraise? Do we have to do this? Has a lot of division three elements with a hyper competitive mode in recruiting. And I love that TJ highlighted that of kind of a question we didn't even get into, but I think that's honestly the biggest transition. It's not really philosophical. Um, it's how you recruit, who you recruit, and uh, you know what level of talent you're recruiting and how you measure that against. What's your ratings? Which ratings are really important to you, and what take a jump? 
by ratings, I just mean like, are you looking for a more athletic dude? Or are you looking for guys who can shoot who fit your system at that level? Yeah, I mean, we could say that you've seen some scouting services in the past. Maybe maybe they rated players one all the way through ten plus. You know, maybe it was one through a hundred. But TJ did kind of talk about how he he and his staff wanted to make sure that they were on the same page for how they recruited. And obviously, he hasn't had an opportunity in you know the spring and maybe won't this summer to kind of recruit for that first ECC season. But it is a situation where he got to play half of his schedule as Division two games this year. So he got to play, you know. Nova Southeastern and Stack and Southern New Hampshire and schools that are really good division two programs. And you get to see the quality of player that those schools have. And you get to see like, okay, well, this is what we now need to shoot for. And I thought that was pretty interesting because we've joked about this a ton smalls, but really good division two teams are very, very good. And as good as low major division one teams, and sometimes even mid major division one teams. And some guys are hearing this and they're like, Tyler, you're crazy to say that. And I just, I just would love to see some teams really go into Lincoln Memorial's gym or go into Northwest Missouri and like really play them on their home court and, and see how they would do because like the guys at those schools are so good. And, and if you're TJ, like he said, like you're, you're going to strive to win a national championship. And you know, small as like, we joke about this all the time, but like you coached at a school this year that had a chance to win the national title. Like it wasn't far fetched. So we know that, and you played Bridgeport and you played Stack and those two teams are on the same level. So we know the ECC had two teams in their conference already that could conceivably win a national title. And it was interesting to hear TJ say that he wanted to get to that level. And it's not that crazy to think about. Yeah. And I think, you know, you hit it. Uh, and TJ kind of realizes it playing those teams, but Stack's a team that not too long ago, maybe a year or two ago, blew out St. John's in the Big East. I mean, blew them out. They put 40, I think they beat them by 40. Um, Lee Smalls, didn't you guys beat James Madison? We beat James Madison. We played James Madison to overtime one year. Boston uh, lost, College, didn't you Boston play? Boston College, we lost by seven. We got them 1 a.m. Uh, on that snowstorm. And then we lost to Pitt by like five. Or no, maybe lost them by a little more. But I know we were up at halftime on Pitt, at Pitt. No, those are different circumstances. Well, we I saw sciences beat. We saw sciences beat Drexel. Drexel. Like, a lot. Of, a lot of things happen. I mean, Division two teams play up to those opponents. They're definitely. Really, uh, Division one, you play a little down. You might mix in different subs, but at the end of the day, there's there's definitely like if you want to get to the high high end of Division two, um, and something I learned earlier on, you really have to recruit. It's not really select recruiting, but you have to recruit at a high level. Uh, to those division one, those players that people might not think are division one or they're division one and what's your way in. Um, so it, it takes time, but I think if you get the right players in, I think that's where TJ sounded really good, man. He he knows exactly what type of person off the court that he wants in terms of his program. I think that's so important for a young coach to have confidence in that element uh, where as a lot of the guys, you're taking seven questionable guys rather than just taking two because that's really what can blow up in your face. So I'm confident in TJ doing a great job. And, and Smalls, how many guys have we had on this show, especially at the small college level, that have told us like one of the reasons their seasons haven't been successful, you know, sometimes it's injuries, but other times it's off-the-court stuff. It's academics. It's, you know, literally like financial things. And so I think when you – as a coach, like you said, when you've established what your culture is going to be off the court, then you fall in line in between the lines and it becomes a little easier for you. Uh, I don't want to take up too much more time on this, but we did have a really interesting discussion on recruiting 
and how people recruit and why they recruit the way they do, which I thought was very fascinating. And then also, you know, props to TJ because we talked a little bit about being disillusioned with the business. And I think that's a scary thing for people to admit to themselves that like, hey, I'm a little bit upset with how this has gone for me so far. It hasn't gone the way that I wanted to. And, you know, I say this a lot, Smalls, but I do feel like that's the type of stuff that we wanted to highlight when we started this show 150 plus episodes ago was like, when it feels like, you can't catch a break and it feels like you nothing has gone the right way for you or feels like you've just roadblock after roadblock like how do you push through it and in tj's case you know i won't spoil the story but it, before he gets to csi has a kind of a you know a disappointing thing go down for him and then you know you guys can say all you want like oh well he played there he was an alum and, and he even said like he thought about not applying for the job and certainly it helped him but you know you have to take advantages where you get them in this business and i think listening to him and how he kind of got reinvigorated is really interesting because this is a guy that he was under 30, like talking about being like needing to be reinvigorated under 30. You know, a lot of coaches will tell you like, Oh man, get up, grind through it, like get motivated. And you know, it's almost like, I just don't buy that all the time. Like sometimes you need to know, like you need real strategies. You need to really figure out like, all right, how am I going to make this what I want it to be? Cause sometimes man, it's just not all sunshine and rainbows. You know, I don't know about that cliche. I think it's a good one, but it's a great I, one. And so like, I love that part of the discussion. And, and I think that, you know, I want to make sure to not get away from stuff like that. Cause if you know, you, you listen to it and, and there's all these awesome like coaches roundtables going on on Twitter right now, like zoom meetings, like virtual clinics and stuff like that. But if we can kind of be in that niche where, you know, people are so excited about learning and growing right now, but like what happens when you feel like your growth has stopped. And I think that that's what I really appreciated that part of it. Small is like, it was so interesting to hear because you and I have both had moments like that before. Yeah. And I think I, I totally agree. I mean, in the same light, you know, all the, all the stuff you see on social media and the Twitter is, you know, you got to grind through it. Like you just said, you got to get up. Like if you want to be in this industry, you got to do this, this and that. I also just, I kind of say this every once in a while, but you also got to know maybe it's not for you and may, and that's okay. That's honestly okay. You got to have that realization when yourself. Uh, hey, maybe maybe I want a I want a different job, a different career, and another industry interests me. And I, I want to spend. I want a nine. I want a nine to five job. Like I want to spend more time with my family because that happens. And like that's I said, fine. and I appreciate. You know, like we've had guys like Dale Wellman said. Like you know, like I'm. I wasn't a D one guy, right? Like I worked in D one, and it just wasn't for me. Like I was a Division three guy, and I think that's part of your growth in the industry is like, what is correct for you? Like some guys are, I hate to say this, right? Everybody's goal when they set out is to be freaking the head coach at North Carolina, right? Like yeah. well, very few people are going to do that, but yeah, Kansas some, state, but yeah. yeah, some people are, some people are lifetime administrative people, right? Like some people you're just, you're going to be Adobo. You're going to be video. You're going to own that role. You're better at that than you are at recruiting or being on the floor. Some people are better at being assistants. They're not really set out to be the CEO or run a program. Some people figure out, like you said, smalls, like, Maybe this isn't right for you. Maybe you want to be an academic administrator or something, but you get your start in basketball. And like, I think that's part of the growth is being able to look yourself in the mirror and being like, okay, like what's really going on here? Like, is it my fault? Is it somebody else's fault? Do I keep getting unlucky? And I think like in this case, at least with TJ, like, you know, we'll, we'll let him explain it. But I, I think it's natural to get disillusioned. And I just want to remind people that like, you know, you don't have to just get down in the dumps or you don't have to send 7,000 letters to coaches and hope you get a job. Like you can figure out ways to be successful yourself. And I think that that part of this interview was really great, but I don't want to take up too much more time. Smallest anything 
else going on in your life you want to talk about? Any any other new shows you've binged? Anything else you can tell anybody who's listening in case they're bored once they listen to this show? Uh, nothing really. Yeah, I got a Peloton, so hit me up on Chris Angelos if you want to follow me. If you want to compete against the best, go ahead. I'm a top 12% Peloton rider right now. That's pretty good. That's well, pretty good. Beginner, advanced beginner, but um, I'm eventually going to be top 3% because that's just what I do. You know, I grind, I get up, grind, wake up, grind, go to sleep, grind, 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 grind. But What's no, your username? Chris, it's just Chris Angelo. Super simple. Just follow me, check me out on the app and, you know, maybe join my class every once in a while. I might be an instructor soon. Just imagine motivation. I love I it. I wish we, walls. it's pretty disappointing that we, we never had you on camera when we were at Soul Cycle in Austin. Cause I think people need to understand the spinning experience with you, but we'll save that for another day. Uh, as usual, we are at create your shot on Twitter, create your shot pod on Instagram, create your shot at gmail.com and create your shot at Facebook. Uh, you like what you hear, reach out to us. DMs always open emails, everything like that. Uh, and please do leave a five-star review. Also follow smalls on Peloton at Chris Angelos. And uh, we appreciate everybody who listens. Enjoy this week's interview with TJ Tibbs, the head coach of the College of Staten Island Dolphins. We are pleased to be joined by TJ Tibbs, the head coach of the College of Staten Island Dolphins. TJ, we were talking a little bit off mic. Everybody's quarantined. It's day 526. I'm not even sure, but we appreciate you joining us. How are you tonight? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate you guys having me. And it's definitely day 527. Um, but how are you guys doing? Man, we're good. Just trying to trying to figure it out. Eh? You know, we didn't get to say that a bunch. It would have been the final four, I guess, this past weekend, Smalls, and we didn't get to kind of talk to everybody and say like, oh, just trying to be like you, man, just trying to keep living, trying to figure it out. So it's good that we got to say it on the air now, I guess. Right, buddy? Uh, yeah, it's great. You know, just asking about your team. You got some tough kids coming in. Your kids are really tough, man. You coach them up. I had them all ready to go and just it's, in, it's inside of me now. It's just bottled up. Who knows? Next Final Four is just going to be an explosion of coaching. <laughs> it is. All right, TJ. This was your third year at the College of Staten Island. A little bit of a tougher year this year, 9-16 and 16 after back-to-back 17-win seasons. We'll kind of get into why this year was a little bit different just in terms of your scheduling and what's coming in the future. But, you know, for you as you look back on this year, what went right and what went wrong? Yeah, for for me, I think everything went right, and it sounds crazy uh, from a nine and sixteen season and a perspective of a program that's been uh, pretty successful um, in the last decade. Um, but it was really a two year process or a year and a half process where um, we got hit with this whirlwind in about January, in the middle of our season before that we would most likely be making the move next year to Division Two. Um, so in the middle of a season where we're trying to get things right, we're trying to compete for a championship, you have this 
cloud hanging over where the kids are worried about so many things. Am I getting replaced? Um, what does this mean about next year? Am I even going to be on the team? And we made a pact in about middle of January because it was starting to get to be a little bit of a distraction to give as much as we can to this season, just in case it was the last time we could compete for a championship in a, in a while. And then we'll worry about the next year right after the season. Um, so heading into the um, spring, uh, we made a conscious decision to not add anybody um, because student athlete experience is really at the top of my uh, priority. So, you know, of course, my phone was blowing up to whatever we could add to kids that would help us have a better record. But um, all I want to do is rebuild um, a program that didn't need rebuilding, but needs remodeling because we're going through a different challenge. Um, but I wasn't going to do that at the expense of my three seniors and other kids on the roster. This year was really for them. With that being said, uh, record-wise, like I said, everything went right. Our kids played hard every night. Uh, we looked like a CSI basketball team for most of the nights. We did struggle. Um, we went out and we wanted to compete just like we would in Division Three against really tough opponents um, going around the country um, like I hope to do in the future. And talent-wise, we just we didn't have enough. That's just point-blank period. We didn't have enough to compete with a lot of the teams. Um, I was out-coached in a lot of games. Um, I didn't help my kids in a lot of games uh, to kind of shorten that gap. Um, but they continued to play hard. They had great attitudes. We competed. We, we were a little short with some injuries. But, you know, the bottom line is, record-wise, we just didn't get enough done. But I, I was even more proud than I was in other seasons where we were 17 and 11. Yeah, you did play, I mean, a really tough schedule, especially for a team that would be a CUNYAC team. Normally, you know, Nova Southeastern, I know Stack, you guys played. I think you played Southern New Hampshire. What was it like playing that kind of out-of-conference schedule and then trying to get right for conference? Like, did you did you feel like, hey, like, we're battle testers? Or did you feel like, man, we, we actually did get beat up pretty good out-of-conference? What was that like as a coach? Yeah, it was it was literally like two different seasons. Um, and at the beginning, we only had about seven, eight guys that could really play. Um, and then the second game of the season, we lost one of our starters in the Barry game to an ankle injury. He was out for a bunch of games. So um, we had made a decision to play zone for the whole entire year in September because we just couldn't afford to get anybody in foul trouble. And um, we probably weren't going to be able to guard Division II type teams with size, man to man, especially because we weren't a big team for. Um, a division three level anyway. So we decided to play zone. Uh, with that being said, uh, looking back at it, especially when you look at some of the scores and how we played, it really didn't matter what defense we played. We, they just had so much more talent. Um, so when we got back into division three games and, and CUNY schedule, um, we went back to playing man to man out of just like, we just don't need to play the zone anymore. And we had lost so many reps of playing man-to-man that we just didn't look like the defensive team that we had been in the past. So that was something that we kind of overstated because we wanted to go into the Division Two games with how is the best way to win. Uh, guarding these guys straight up is not going to be the best chance. Um, it may sound crazy, but we went down to Nova and Barry and we were trying to figure out a way to win the game. Um, so that was the best chance. If Certainly if I could do it over again in hindsight, we would probably just take our 70-point L playing man-to-man and build on our habits. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't trade that experience of playing those type of teams and then the rest of the games for anything. Because, honestly, when you're playing 
some of the games and none of the games count in the standings for as far as um, a conference, um, I can understand how an 18 to 22 year old kid could not be necessarily motivated to play a road game in, in January. So we just had to figure that out. What is the main change or main changes that you've made uh, during the course of this year? And now as we enter the spring in terms of recruiting, you know, obviously recruiting past division three players and looking for that, maybe level up and now recruiting division two and low division one players. Yeah. And I think the number one thing that we're not changing is we recruit people. Um, We don't recruit players. We recruit people and we recruit families. Um, That's the one thing that is never going to change. Now, obviously we have to recruit a higher caliber of athlete and higher caliber caliber of student athlete with the different uh, academic rules in division two. But we had already had those things in place um, from the two years prior. So it has made it a little bit easier. Um, it, it's been fun. It's been fun to go out and actually, because when you're in division three in a CUNY school, you kind of go after the kids that fit to come to your school. Um, you can't necessarily go after kids and convince them to come if they're out of your geographical area or out of your, the type of demographic of kids that naturally come to our school. We're mostly a commuter school. We just got dorms right after I graduated. So uh, 2013. So the dorms are brand spanking new. Um, and uh, so the type of kids we usually recruit the, my past two years are way different. Um, and it's fun because now we're in recruiting battles. It's a, it's a competitive aspect. Uh, now you're watching games and, and you can feel comfortable with kids that play well, that they're not going to outplay your level. Um, even though they still can, but you can still have a chance to go after certain type of kids. And uh, as soon as the word got out that we were going Division Two, the official word, I was actually in AC for the live period uh, last year. And that was the start of me becoming one of the most popular people around because, of, you know, finding out having scholarships, of course, um, it just puts you in a different type of light. Um, everybody naturally feels like they know what fits your program uh, because they want to help their kids out. Um, so navigating that, um, and being as uh, accessible as I'd like to be for people um, has been a challenge, but it's just something that I'm going to have to continue to grow with. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. The trust element of the people who are not really doing the evaluating, you're doing the evaluating, but the people are there with those people, the players, the kids, the families every day. Um, you have to find you know, who you trust and who you trust in their opinion. Cause now they're dealing with scholarships and that can, that can be a whole lot of different things coming at you. And a lot of different people texting you and telling you, I got a dude for you. This dude's awesome. Right. Right. And I know you, I know, you know, and, and the biggest thing we say all the time in meetings is, I mean, don't trust somebody who always has a dude for you in April and never has a dude for you in September. Um, I, I like kid. the guys who tell me, I who tell me, listen, this kid's not good because that tells me they kind of know the level, especially right. if you can look back in their past roster and you see what kind of success the players have had and things like that. Um, so yeah, definitely. My my bad, I cut you off there. Who me? Yeah, I oh, thought no, I cut I you off. No, oh, no, good. No. Oh, good. Good I radio. Appreciate <laughs> that, that 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 insight because you know. It is a tough thing to navigate, and you just learn. You know, I'm I'm still learning with that, and and you know, hopefully, I continue to build relationships. And but you're always gonna get people who just want to try to give you kids because they want to help their kids out. And I can't be mad at that. You just gotta, you know, navigate that. 
Uh, definitely. And I, I jumped the gun, mentioned evaluating and that evaluation process. Uh, I can imagine that's different, like going from any level, right? If I'm a low division one assistant and now I'm a mid-major division one assistant, now at the low level or wherever you are, if I'm D2 and I'm going to D1, I'm always saying, oh, that player, man, I would get him if I was at that school or something like that. But it comes a lot harder because you have a wider array of players, you're comparing different athletes and things like that. Has, has your evaluation process changed a little bit? And are there certain aspects that you're looking for, particularly to compete at the Division II level that you weren't looking at the Division Three level? Yeah, uh, it, it, the process hasn't changed, but the eye aspect of it has a bit. And, and I'll tell you, during July, it didn't change at all uh, because there's a lot of times when I spent my one year at NJIT, there would be kids you watch on film or you hear about and you say, wow, they'd be a great Division II kid. Um, because at NGIT, we were a low major. So if we didn't feel they, they were good enough for us, then they would definitely be good enough for Division II. Um, and that's not a knock on any Division II school, obviously. It's just you just think that's the next you know, place to land on the totem pole. If he's not mid-major, he's low major. If he's not low major, he's Division II. Um, but when we played Nova and they were number two in the country, um, they were literally, with all respect to all the teams that I've coached against and the teams I've seen in my one-year Monmouth as a player, they were one of the best teams I've ever seen live um, in person, especially with their size, their shooting ability, and, and their style. So putting those things together, we were, on, we were in the vans on the way back to our hotel, and I said, I don't know what a Division II player is because that was different. <laughs> so. I thought I knew what one was, but I would have never envisioned a team full of that. And of course, there are teams that beat them and teams that are better than them, but um, their style was just overwhelming for especially where we're at as a program. Um, and and that was the whole point of us going down there. So our process with how we evaluate, um, I've always disliked sitting and talking to guys and people saying, well, he's good and he's good or, yeah, he's a really good player because I never understood what that meant because everybody's goalposts are different. Um, that's a that's a good point. Like everybody's, you're you're exactly right. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but you're exactly right about that. Like this is great. Everybody's goalposts are different. So the three of us all have. I have the worst basketball knowledge on the show right here. But the three of us all all like what we like with basketball. And if we watch one kid, <clears throat> we can all agree he's good. But how good is going to be our opinion? Um, so. What we developed is a clear evaluation process and language that we have to use when we're speaking about a player. So we're on the we're on the same page. Uh, so we know how much you exactly like that player um, when push comes to shove. So that's what has changed uh, our Florida trip. And, you know, I really want to play the, the, the top team so we can see we, we want to aspire to be that. Now, we want to aspire to be one of the best programs in the country. So to be able to do that, you have to exactly go see what that is. And we were fortunate enough to play some of those teams um and hopefully as we continue to grow we can play more of those teams and we can just uh put that knowledge into our back pocket and, and use that to grow yeah and it's it division two in its own right is is really fascinating because like the top of division two you know like we we've talked about this like merrimack goes to the nec and wins the freaking league their first year in it when they were like fifth in the ne10 last year so it's like 
you know, Nova Southeastern, who you were talking about, and like Northwest Missouri State and Lincoln Memorial, like those teams are ridiculously good. Like those teams have mid-major level college basketball players on them. And I think that understanding and like respecting that, and not saying that you don't, TJ, but for people who just, like you said, who just say like, oh yeah, that's a D2 player, like, the top of Division Two is unbelievably good, and it's like, it, it, and you know, you're gonna, you're gonna get to play against Damon, and you're gonna get to play against, you know, Lemoyne and Stack and Bridgeport and Jefferson, maybe you know, Smalls, maybe they're still gonna be good. I don't know, Dominican, like all those schools, you're gonna get an opportunity to play against, and and the difference between the top and then you know the bottom of those leagues, like we've kind of talked about, like the bottom of the CAC, the bottom of the ECC, even the bottom of the NE10. Like there's a huge talent divide, and I think being able to one get some steals, but two be able to evaluate to the point where you're on the same playing field as those upper echelon schools. It's it's just like it's not the easiest thing to say, and I, I appreciate you saying that. Like you kind of break it down into a process, I, and I, I want to know a little bit too about your career because. You did spend one year at Monmouth, and then you end up transferring to CSI. And I don't know—I don't know off the top of my head how many kids would go from a D1 school to a Division three school right away without being like, "Well, you know, I had one year paid for. Now I'm, you know, I'm going to go try to do D2." But what was the reasoning behind going to CSI instead of maybe going to an ECC school or a, you know any 10 school or something like that? Yeah, so I was a walk-on at Monmouth. Um, I knew that I would be able to go. I was gracious enough, uh, Coach Callaway. Told me if I came that I would I would have a spot I would have a good opportunity to have a spot so I went um, I always felt that coaching was going to be my future and I didn't know anybody in Division One so I thought it was really important to be in a Division One program um, if that's what I wanted to do um, I had another one only one other option to to play Division One and it was far and I didn't want to be that far from my family so I went um, I had a blast as far as learning a lot uh, they had just came off of uh, going to the NCAA tournament, they won a playing game and then played that Villanova team that was ridiculous. Um, in the tournament, they played them pretty tough too. Um, so when I left there, it was really had nothing to do with basketball. Just had to do with I just needed a little bit of a better fit of a school. Uh, basketball program treated me great. Um, I actually went to Wagner in between uh, going to CSI. Uh, you know, Wagner's right here on Staten Island. Um, I wanted to try to possibly give it another shot and play basketball there uh, and learn from Mike Dean, who obviously was around uh, and a basketball lifer. And I wanted to try to learn that didn't work out. So I spent some time there. And finally, I just realized I'm a, I need to put something down. I'm a basketball player. Um, I love the game. Um, I need to go play. And I was lucky enough that Coach Patoza gave me an opportunity, um, hat in hand. And uh, I came in with a bunch of guys that uh, we helped change at least the mentality of the program, that was the number one thing we wanted to do. And I was fortunate enough to play with guys that just took me on a ride um, that I'd never be able to forget. Did you get recruited by CSI when you were in high school? Like, did you have your fair share of like D3, D2? And then, like you said, you had opportunity to go to Monmouth as a preferred walk-on. Like, what was your high school recruiting like, TJ? And how, how does that help you now as a head coach? Yeah, so that's a great question. So, um. I'm the I'm one of two kids. My sister didn't play any sports. So the recruiting world, as much as I was into basketball and sports and my dad is and he coaches, we didn't really know much about it. Um, so in high school, I had a couple of two or three schools, Division One schools that were interested in me. Um, one was Charleston Southern. Like I said, it, it wasn't even an option for me. Um, it was way too far. And, you know, in high school, 
I played against a lot of kids in New York City who went to Division One. Edgar Sosa went to Louisville. Curtis Kelly went to UConn and then Kansas State. Brian McKenzie, one of my close friends, went to Providence. So you're, you're playing against these kids growing up. And although I knew I wasn't as good as these kids, I knew I wasn't that far behind. Um, so I knew I can play at a at a level um, like a low D1, at least I felt. Um, in between that, I didn't have any Division II interest at all. Um, I couldn't tell you anything about Division II in high school. Um, and then I had a couple of academic Division III schools. But although I'd like to consider myself to be somewhat smart, I didn't want to challenge myself that much in school. Um, I just didn't think I was built to go to like an NYU or um, that's, that type of work was intimidating to me um, for a college experience. So um, it, uh, Coach Patoza recruited me out of high school. Um, there was honestly a 0% chance I was going to do that. And that was probably more because it was on Staten Island um, and you want to go away from home. And then when I left Monmouth, he gave me a call and I had a good conversation with him. And then I actually decided to go to Wagner to be a student. And then, um, and then my third time was a charm, and I decided to go. Well, it ends up being a really good, you know, I don't want to bury the lead or anything, but it ends up being a really good situation for you. You end up, you know, D3 All-America type honors, like CUNYAC All-Star, and then you get a little NCAA tournament experience where you, you hang 40 on, on Rhode Island College and you get to the Sweet 16. And I'm just curious, like, if you look back on it, would you change anything? Like, is there any, would you go to CSI right away or you had to go to mom? If you had to go to Wagner, like, did you have to go on the journey to get there? And and also like good on coach Patoza for picking up the phone, you know, three different times to be like, TJ, can you, can you make the trip down here? You know, but like, would you change anything? I wouldn't change not one thing. Um, and I've had some rough days um, missing the game and, and thinking it's unfair, realizing that division one is a business first. Um, so I didn't think I would play any college basketball at all. And um, you see kids who reclass and do all these things and then they, they get what they want. And all I was was a kid that did the right thing in high school and did the right thing in college. And I felt like I was being punished for it. Um, but I wouldn't change anything because it definitely built uh, a mentality that I keep today of uh, just fighting for everything. And um, the only thing I really missed out at CSI was was like records, which doesn't matter. Um, don't really care about that. I don't think we make a Sweet 16 run if I'm there for four years. Um, that, because there was a sense of urgency that I had personally of, I only have two years to do this. We lost in the conference championship my first year, and that was devastating. And that whole second year, my senior year, we knew we were good, but we never foot, took the foot off the gas because there was a bunch of us that it was our last ride. and. So there was no time for complacency. Even when we won the championship, um, I was happy and excited, but we were worried about, all right, we, how long can we keep this going? Because nobody, nobody wants to stop this. So it was an incredible ride. I, like I said, I was, I was carried by um, my teammates. Uh, Bluchy McGlure was the all-time leading scorer. Jordan Young was one of the best players I ever played with. Dale Toronto, guys like that, they really carried me on that run. I was just fortunate enough to be the point guard on that team. No, for sure. And, and being on a team like that is, like you said, it's so significant. I think it's significant for your coaching development. Did you feel like you learned stuff? And obviously you've learned a ton of items from Coach Patoza, but did you feel like in those two years that you really took certain things from Coach Patoza in terms of pushing you guys? And, and I know you 
you have that inner fire to get you to the next level. But what what are some of the things that Coach Patoza kind of implemented that you felt like I want to do that in my coaching career? Coach Patoza is the best practice coach that I've ever been around. Um, and I say that because I've, I'm from Staten Island, so I watched a lot of CSI games. Uh, I wouldn't say growing up, but when I was a little bit older because friends were there. And he doesn't really say much. He sits there the whole entire game. He doesn't really say much. Uh, his sign that he's mad is he gets up and he walks to the water cooler and he walks back. That's when you know he's really mad. Um, so playing for him, you didn't realize that every day in practice, everything that you do in practice literally has to do with the game. Um, I didn't believe we were a pressing team until I graduated and I was talking to somebody I used to compete against. And I'm like, boy, you're pressed. And I'm like, we, we didn't press. What are you talking about? But we did extend pressure a lot. We practiced it every day. So we weren't a pressing team. We weren't like a Shaka Smart VCU or Nova Southeastern or a Stack, but we did have pressing principles. So we were able to press, um, but other teams had to prepare for that. Uh, in turn, we were prepared when teams pressed us because we practiced against it every single day. Um, the one thing I admire about him and um, that I try to take from him the most is one that he put a lot of trust in my hands and guys' hands that he felt that deserved it. And he let you play. Um, I never looked to the side to see if I was coming out or if he was how he reacted to a shot um, or to a, a turnover. Um, he actually told me one time I told him not to put me in the game. I was destroyed with my confidence. And he looked me in the eye. He said, he said, you're TJ Tibbs. You go back into that game and you do what we do. And I still went out there and sucked. But <laughs> he had all the confidence in the world that I was going to do something and I didn't have any. So um, that's a big thing for me as I tell my guys that um, I can't give you confidence and I can't take your confidence away. So I don't want to hear that. But I'm going to give you free reign to do whatever it is that you deserve to do. Not what you want to do, but what you deserve to do. And if you think it's good, I think it's great. So let's do it. And that's a Patoza thing, just a little less outgoing about it. Yeah, and you get the, you get the job. You replace Coach Patoza, which is, I, I think it's an odd thing for any former player or even an assistant that's been on the bench for a while with a coach, and now you're replacing that head coach. Did you feel any kind of pressure? And what was that situation like for you? Let me let me jump in for one second real quick about this. I, we, we ran a couple AAU events at, at CSI over the last couple of years. And one thing about Tony Potosa is he's like this big personality, like a guy that you would expect to see. You know, like I hate to say this, but like he's an Italian dude. Like he'd, he'd be like a guy you'd expect as like a bit player in the Sopranos. Like he has a really big personality and he's like a tremendous basketball coach, right? Like winning his CUNYAC coach of all time, 400 plus wins, like they're 25 years. But, but you know, TJ, you're you're under 30, like you're a former player. I think I, I just want people to understand the, the differences between the two of you and what type of guy you were replacing. And that, that was the point of jumping in. Like he is, you know, he's a, got a heck of a personality, man. It's he's big personality. Yeah. Yeah. Big dude, six, five, six, six, and huge uh, personality. I think that's a great point. But, um, to me, th there wasn't any pressure. Um, it took me a long time before I actually decided to even apply. I, I applied for the job on the last day that you could. I was going back and forth. A lot of that was because where I was mentally with the college basketball business, um, I just was not in a good place with it. Um, so I could not take the possible rejection of my alma mater. Um, I just wasn't in a good place with that. Um, but the other end was 
if I felt I was the right person to carry on what coach did. And, um, you know, no matter what I do in my life, no matter where I am, hopefully I'm coaching at CSI, but I will always care about how CSI athletics is doing. So to selfishly, I wanted the next person to be somebody that deserved to take it over. And I wasn't sure if that was me. Um, but taking over for him, I didn't feel any pressure um, because from the moment I set foot in the program as a player, um, I wanted nothing but to be one of the best programs in the country. And that's not just on the court, but everything. And when uh, my Sweet 16 team was the best team in school history, um, as far as any sport, and I talk about that all the time, but the, when we lost at the MIT in that game, um, I looked all the younger guys in the eyes and said, I do not want this to be the best team ever in CSI history. Um, I want next year's team to be the best team and then keep getting better because that's a program. Otherwise, that's just one team. Um, so for me, it was just a welcome uh, shot to be able to continue what I wanted to do from 2012 and to be hands on and to be able to, to, to have a big impact on the community. Um, I love Staten Island. So to be able to have that role and to be able to have that platform, um, I didn't feel pressure because I can't anybody put any more pressure than I could put on myself. Um, so uh, Coach Patoza is very supporting. He wanted me to go for the job. Um, my first year, we talked often or as often as he allowed me to talk to him. And um, I'm just happy that I'm able to bridge the guys that he coached from his younger days. and. Um, you know, guys that I'm coaching now and guys that are more like my generation of players. And that's the fun part of being a coach. It's interesting that you talk about being disenfranchised a little bit with the business, because I think everybody kind of goes through that. But, you know, TJ, like you're kind of, I guess, like your whole career was set up to be a college basketball coach or to coach basketball. Like you were at CSI and you were coaching high school basketball while you were also a player. So it was always your plan. I don't want to like, dance around this at all but you know what was going on for you that was making the business different than what you thought it would be like what was making it frustrated for you and and how did you work through that because I I do think I would say 95 percent of coaches go through a a, a couple moments like this or seasons like this where they're like damn like this is not what I thought it was going to be right right and I think this is important and uh, hopefully somebody could take something out of this but um at the end of my third year Baruch I took an interim head coaching job at the College of Mount St. Vincent. Um, I met the kids 24 hours before the game. We had a three-hour practice. Uh, then we played a game. Um, we ended up going four and four in my time there um, in eight games uh, when they were previously uh, three and 14. Um, I learned a lot from that experience about myself. Um, a lot of people told me don't take that job, not because of the school or the job, but necessarily be- because they didn't think it would help me and they didn't think that I could do anything that would let me get the job afterwards. Um, and that wasn't really my concern. My concern was just, let's go eight and no, let's make the playoffs. And at the very least, I'll have an incredible learning experience. But then when you get involved in it and you feel like you did a pretty solid job, especially considering the circumstances, and then they have a hiring process that's coming up, you just probably unfairly expect that the hiring process will go a certain type of way. And for full transparency, not that I thought I would get hired, but I kind of took for granted that I would at least get an interview. Um, and I didn't. And um, a lot of people don't believe that when I say that, because I would even welcome the interview that 
was kind of like a, a bogus interview, even if they knew that, who they were going to hire. Um, but when I got the news that I wasn't even going to be interviewed, that was the day I realized that it doesn't matter if you're good in this business. Being good is like the last thing you have to check off to be able to advance or get another job. Um, can you get jobs without being good? Sure, certain types of jobs. Um, but I don't really think it matters that much. So there were other things that I had to learn and some things that I was and still are not willing to do um, to be able to advance or to, quote unquote, get ahead. Um, so I was in a place where I was done because I've been trying to do the education and do everything I was supposed to do to to be able to put myself in the light to get a situation uh, to become a head coach. And if I couldn't get an interview in that situation, then I didn't think I would ever get an interview to be a head coach. Um, and if that was the case, I was going to leave. So and that's how I was feeling about it, it. it. It's pretty amazing that like CSI then opens up and it's, it's, it's a job that you can get, you know, like, I, I think it's funny, like one door closes and you, you're, 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 you're angry, like you're upset about it. And then you walk into a situation where, yeah, you gotta, you gotta get the job. Obviously they're not gonna, just going to give it to you, but like you get a chance. Did you feel reinvigorated going into that hiring process? Like once you said like, Hey, I applied the last day I could. But like when they were like, all right, TJ, we're going to interview you and you were getting your stuff ready. Did you feel like, damn, like I'm, I'm actually ready to go for this and I want to get this job and I'm not afraid to fail and not get it? No, um, I got to give my fiance all the credit in the world because for lack of better words, she basically stopped, told me stop being a baby. And uh, <laughs> Sometimes we need that, right? Like sometimes you need somebody to say that to you. All the time. And we've worked for this. Um, we've worked for an opportunity like this. and. Um, you know, she has constantly been there to, to, to pick me up uh, when I need it. And um, so, yeah, that's what she made me apply. <laughs> um, she made me apply. And then once you apply and you, you accept to, to go interview, you know, I was all in from there. Um, but the process leading up to deciding whether or not I was going to apply, I just was in a mental place where I didn't want to face the rejection of not getting a job that I absolutely wanted. Um, I haven't applied for a lot of jobs in my in my life, uh, period, and in coaching, and this one was the one I wanted the most. Um, so um, I didn't. There was no shoe in. I definitely being an alum and playing there and being on the team that I was on. Of course, it it helped, and I knew it did. Um, but you got to take any advantage that you can get, and just go in there and be prepared, and and just hope for the best. Yeah, first year on the job, you guys win, uh, win the conference and then make the NCAA tournament. You lose to a very good Cabrini team at the buzzer. What did you kind of take away and learn from that first year? Uh, that I want, I really solidified a lot of my non-basketball philosophies in that year. Really? Uh, yeah. Confidence, right? Yeah. Yeah. That number one, um, because the first meeting I had with the team, we were supposed to be picked fifth. Uh, we didn't find that out until October, November, but we, we had lost a lot from the previous year. They had won, they had lost a swap more um, when uh, Landry was, you know, at the beginning of this incredible run that he's on. Um, but they had lost in the first round. And uh, I went to a meeting, and it sounds really like cocksure, but I said, um, this is a championship program. I was a part of it as a player. I'm now a part of it as a head coach. Um, this is going to be a championship program. Um, we're not rebuilding. Um, we're, we're going after being uh, a champion. And I never want to get blown out in an NCAA tournament ever again. It's not going to happen. Um, we, whenever we get to that 
opportunity and we play a top 25 team on their court, uh, we're going to win one of those games. And that was July 26th or 27th. And everything that we did on and off the court, there was a lot of things. The advantage I had was I knew everything that Coach Patoza did because I was a part of the program. So I knew, okay, they practiced like this. They warmed up like this. Their expectation for this was this. I was a part of that. So I knew things that I was changing, the type of pushback I would probably get because I already knew what it looked like beforehand. And it was easier for me to message to the guys like, hey, when I played and we did 75 jumping jacks before every practice, I hated that. And I know you hate it too. So we're not going to do 75 jumping jacks, but we're going to do this that has the same effect of doing these jumping jacks because Coach Patoza was notorious for doing jumping jacks and I couldn't stand it. And I knew guys didn't like it neither. So we just got rid of it. Um, so when I made decisions about other things, because obviously we're two different personalities, um, not necessarily that the kids bought in, um, but they kind of had an understanding that I wasn't just changing it just because. Um, this has probably been thought about uh, for years and how I felt as a player. Um, and what I remember the most is that the kids really carried us to everything. And assistant coaches are the most important people in your program. Um, our assistant coaches led us to that incredible season and they will forever lead us to any success that we have. And the only reason why we had success on the court was because of our older leaders and because of our assistant coaches. So it just, uh, solidified the fact that we need to schedule tough because we started like 0 and 5 or 1 and 5 or whatever. Like, I don't know if we'll ever start well as a coach here because the schedules are always going to be murderous. And those losses in the beginning of the year certainly helped us at the end of the year. Um, and that's why I don't really believe in record much to go back to your first question about nine and 16 from the outside looking in, it just looks like we had a down year, but we could have certainly dressed up the schedule in a way to not be nine and 16. And I don't know if we would have gotten a lot more out of that. So um, our seniors, I actually just text our two seniors, one coaches at Fordham, he's a GA and the other one has a regular job. I was just talking to him the other day and they were so integral to what we did. They bought in, even though it wasn't immediate, um, and we were able to – I still think we underachieved, um, but uh, we were able to, you know, go to some places and compete against a really well-coached Cabrini team in, in that last game. Yeah, there's different personnel groupings that are definitely critical to any program success. You mentioned assistant coaches. Uh, they're obviously a, part, a cog in that machine. How did you go about putting together your staff that process, if you could describe that and what you were looking for and what you're looking for in an assistant, uh, because I think it ranges from different coaches, but what were you particularly looking for in a successful assistant coaching staff? Yeah, in the beginning, and when I first put it together, I was looking for familiar faces um, because a lot of the things I was saying I wanted to do with the program, um, unless you knew the program or unless you were really passionate about the program, uh, you would think that was crazy. Um, you know, we want to win a national championship. Um, I know people laugh and probably think I'm crazy when I say those things and still say those things, but I really believe the program has that much potential and I lived it as a player. Um, so I know that it's possible to be able to be put up there with other programs that you never get put uh, next to. So um, I really wanted to try to find former players um, because I knew they would share the same passion in the program as I did. So that was the first step. And I ended up getting J.C. Albano, who was my teammate um, in that 2012 season. So he was around the magic that happened and knows it wasn't just pixie dust and that we, we worked really hard and what we needed to do to get there. 
Uh, Nick Duran was already a coach on the staff. And I know Nick Duran since um, I was in the seventh grade. And he played for my dad and CYO. Um, and he learned from Tony. So you try to get guys that learn from great guys. And he was already in the program. It was familiar with a lot of the guys that I didn't know. So that was important. Um, and moving forward, I added uh, a guy that played for me, Abe Akimu at the time. He played for me at Baruch. And Orrin McKay Jr., who was uh, a police officer um, in Wall Township. So the number one thing I look for in assistant coaches and always look for are men of character. I can't walk into people's living rooms and tell them how good of a basketball coach that I am or somebody else is because it doesn't matter. Um, what type of man am I going to have their kids around? So I need men of character standards, and then maybe I need a basketball coach. Um, because if you want to be a college basketball coach, you know some level of coaching. You probably know more about basketball than I do. So we can figure out the basketball part. But I need when one of our young men has a problem, um, I need more than four people that they can go to and ask for advice or really get a real opinion, not somebody who's just going to tell them something out of a quote book. Um, somebody who's going to some some real life stuff. And um, anybody who's ever on my staff knows that uh, you got to keep it real. and and have to keep it real with me as much as possible. So moving forward, you know, like we talked a little bit about the transition into Division Two and everything, but for you, you know, how are you goal setting year in and year out now? Like you, you actually, you know, and I, I believe this, TJ, I'm not just blowing smoke up your butt here, but like you talking about 9 and 16 and it being a positive thing. Like I, I actually, I believe that. I believe that that's something that you said like, hey, we needed this season and we need this season for the future. But, you know, moving forward, you know, short-term and long-term, like how are you as a head coach goal setting both for your team and for your career? Yeah, number one, our most of our goals that we have in our program, um, uh, we have standards and expectations. Um, it's really less about, we talk about being a championship program and that's just in our approach. Um, yeah, most of the goals that we have are about saying hello to people when you walk into the room, taking your hat off when you're on campus and you're speaking to a woman. Those are the things because those are a little bit harder for kids to attain. Uh, the basketball things will come. But as far as basketball goes, um, we want to be one of the best teams in the region year in and year out. And we want to win a national championship. Uh, there's only one team in Division Two that is extremely happy with their season. And that's the team that holds the trophy up. Just like it is in Division One, in Division Three, in JUCO, and in the NBA. So we can't win a national championship for the next two years. But we can have that same type of championship work ethic every single day and detail oriented um, with everything that we do socially and, and academically that those habits will carry over. So when it's time to win a basketball game, it seems like one of the easier things that we have done in that year uh, with respect to opponents. Um, we want to be a program who doesn't duck anybody um, that will play anybody within our means, our travel means and our scheduling means. And uh, I want to be known for being a head coach that has produced the most assistant coaches that have turned head coaches um, ever, um, if that is the best thing for their family. Um, so some, those are some of the tangible goals that we have. Very cool. And like you're joining a conference where there are, there are coaches who want to go and play. You know what I mean? Like you, you got guys at the top of the ECC that they, they duck nobody. They try to play national schedules. So it's, it'll be fun. Uh, I, I'm excited to see it. So we're going to go into segments. We got two quotes. Smalls, you got the first one. Uh, it's 
this is a doozy. I don't know what it means. I'm really excited about it. I love Evan Turner. You know that. So, uh, Smalls, you take this one away. The man who sleeps on the floor cannot fall off the bed. That is Evan Turner. And honestly, I kind of like it. I think it's because I'm into Netflix right now with the quarantine. And I feel like this is one of those in the middle of a Netflix interview. They just say this quote and then turn the other way. Like, 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 like. Like your guy Joe Exotic, maybe he said it at the at the Tiger Pen or something. That guy is a piece of work. What a whack job. Um, but PJ, what does this quote kind of mean to you? Uh, to me, and in all respect to Evan Turner, uh, regardless of who said it, but uh, to me, it uh, it's uh, you never know how good you have if you don't take a chance. Um, and I've slept on many of floors, um, but. <laughs> I'd rather, I'd rather sleep on the worst bed than the most comfortable floor, the best floor ever. Um, so, yeah, uh, when I see now, when I hear that, uh, to me, that's, uh, that's about uh, fear of failure. Uh, falling off the bed has never been a positive thing. Um, I've, I've fallen off the top of my bunk when I was younger, and, and that hurt. Um, uh, but I did get back up and get back on my top bunk, um, as corny as that sounds. but. Um, yeah, uh, beds, especially your home beds, are, are extremely comfortable. And if you sleep on the floor your whole entire life and you never know what a bed feels, you'll never know how good of a sleep day you've got. Um, so that's how I take it. Anybody, uh, it's kind of like a fear of failure thing. So I took it in, a, I guess, a kind of negative way. I, I like that, fear of failure. Fear of failure makes total sense here because it, it, that's just it. Like, if you're not willing to get on that bed and stand on and sleep there and Worry about falling off the top 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 bunk like my man TJ. You can't get better. You can't grow, Evan. But also, like if you've slept on the floor before and then you do fall off your bed, like you're not worried about it, right? Because yeah, you, you have you get failed. back up. You, yeah, exactly. You felt yeah. that floor. Hopefully, there's not a nail there, but you felt it. <laughs> oh my god, I don't know where you're sleeping, Smalls. All right, second. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been on any of those floors. <laughs> second, second one. This is this is a quote from you. This was in an article. I, I kind of pieced it together, but it, it was talking about Tony Petosa and talking about you. And you know, I, I wanted to talk about this a little bit, but you know, you said he, he gave me a chance to fall back in love with basketball again, and and I was you were really disillusioned, kind of as a player. And I, I want to know, you know, as a head coach and as a recruiter, and you are going to deal with some D one transfers, you know, at, at Division two level, but. How did going through that experience where, you know, you, you went to two Division One schools and you come back at a Division Three? like, how does that help you now? Like, how does that help you, you know, as an evaluator, as a relationship builder, as somebody who talks to people's families? Like, how does that help you moving forward in, in your career? Yeah, this may sound crazy, but I'm, a, I'm somebody that, you know, if we find somebody that nobody's on and we're, we're on them, um, I'm sitting there rooting for the kids to do good. Like, if they really don't want to come to our school, we really don't want to have them there. Um, I don't want to force a fit. There's no such thing. Um, so even though we may think the kid fits because of his academic profile and his social profile, and then his game is good and we may feel that people are overlooking him, if the kid really wants to go to a higher level, I don't, I don't knock that. Every, every coach wants a kid who's really competitive, but we don't want that when they're recruiting and they think they can play at a higher level. It's just kind of like, it's just kind of mind boggling to me. It's, if the kid's really competitive, he's, he's going to want to play at a higher level. And then the way recruiting goes is he ends up at your school because he sees that's the best fit for him or, you know, other people kind of miss the boat. And how I kind of explain it to people is I played Division three basketball and um, I'm a basketball player. Um, I've been in pro workouts and 
with guys from big time division one schools and and um I've been laughed at in a G League workout, um, a D League workout at the time. And I kind of just turned to one of the guys and said, We both here for the same reason, right? So whether I'm on my way up or you're, you're on your way down, we both here for a reason. So um it's important to me when we recruit to understand that kids are kids. They 17, they 18, they might be 20. You see all these transfers going on. Um, they have these goals for themselves and they're trying really hard to figure out the best way to go get that goal. And 99% of the time, it doesn't involve you. So don't take it personal. Uh, nobody's waking up and thinking about, man, I want to play for a coach just like TJ Tibbs. Said nobody. Um, even as they get to learn about you and and they may like you a lot. Um, but that doesn't mean that you have the situation that they desire uh, so much. Uh, so I understand that. Um, as a player, like I said, I would have never went to CSI out of high school. And that was nothing against Tony Patoza. If CSI was a different level from what I wanted and and not on Staten Island, then I would have been interested in it. So sometimes it's circumstances is greater than whatever you feel like you have to offer. So uh, it has lessened my ego as far as recruiting. Well, I think that that's a big point. Like, and we mentioned it with Coach Patosa before, but like he didn't have an ego to be like, all right, this kid has turned me down. Like, I'm just going to continue to try to give him opportunities. And yeah, he's going to be a good player for us. But I think a lot of coaches and I think a lot of young coaches, they do, they have a big ego and it's like, all right, well, if this kid doesn't want to be here, like forget him. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't want us. We don't want him. And, and in reality, it really should be like, all right, shake the kid's hand and be like, look, if you have an amazing career at Wagner, that's awesome. If you don't, and we can help you later on down the road, like we're going to be here. Cause you are, that, that's like the crazy part about recruiting. And I don't want to get on like a soapbox, but it's like, are you building a relationship just so the kid can help you and you can recruit him to your team? Are you building a legitimate relationship because you care about the kid? And I think, you know, I, I don't want to shout out any other like podcast or any other, you know, coaching organizations or whatever, but like, I never hear guys say that. Like I hear guys say that they want to build relationships with people in the business to help themselves. And, but I never hear them in recruiting talking about like, why are you really building a relationship with a kid? Like we get it, man. Like you want the kid at your school, but at the end of the day, if that doesn't happen, is the relationship just for nothing? Like, is the, is it, is it for shit? And I think that like, that's, you know, TJ, like that's the most refreshing part about your point is like, you, you want the kids to succeed no matter what. And if they don't succeed at college of Staten Island, like, you know, hopefully the kid doesn't hit a buzzer beater against you in the NCAA tournament. You know what I mean? Right. But, right. Uh, right. If you, if you, and we say this all the time, the coaches, the coaches, coaches, the players, players, the coaches, we all that, uh, each other accountable. If you're the real thing, you're the real thing. So if we do our job, there's more than one kid that can help us. It may look different. It may look different, but if we have deemed them to be good enough to be in our program, even though they may not look like the kid that we may have had higher on the list, uh, it's our job to develop them and to mesh those pieces as best way as possible. Um, we're not at a level uh, where we can just recruit the type of kid, that, that exact type of kid that we want every single year. Um, so we're going to have to adjust something in our approach, maybe not on an every year basis, because most of your roster is the same, but maybe on an every two year basis or three year basis. Um, we're going to have to adjust, uh, to our best players. We're going to have to adjust to guys that are, to, that are in the rotation. We're going to have to figure that out. So the, the greatest thing that happened to me this year is a kid that committed somewhere else that we were on since April sent me a text and thanked me not for recruiting him, but for helping him with a bunch of things that he had going on and, 
And I was I was thrilled for him that he committed somewhere else, which sounds crazy. Um, but I was so happy from that he felt that he found a place that is going to help him get to his goals. And what's the worst thing in the world that happens? If you go somewhere in league, you play that kid three times a year. Like, are we really are we really worried about 120 minutes? It's not year? that bad. Yeah, it's just not that bad. So it, 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 it's just my outlook. Now, I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just the way. And every kid that decides to go somewhere else, I will jokingly say to them, hey, look, if we play you, we still <laughs> going to kick the crap out of you. So that's how it, it, you want to compete. And I'm not saying either. You don't want to be the. You definitely don't want to be the staff that continually loses in league recruiting battles. Like that's obviously not good. But I, I think if we look at things like a little bit more holistically, and it's easy for me to say that. You know, you and Smalls are out there actually. You know, in the streets battling other dudes. I'm sitting in you know my spare bedroom talking on a microphone, so it's easier for me to say this. I think, but I do feel like it is. You know, one of the things that the guys that I know, especially Division One level, that are really, really, really successful recruiters. Like, I, I feel like they build genuine relationships. And, and when they miss on kids, they miss. But then, uh, you know, comes back around and you, you, you build a kid, you get those kids maybe a, a second time or you, you build other relationships or, or things happen the way they're supposed to. And I, I think, like, that's a big thing for success, especially on the recruiting trail. I really do. Yeah, you can always – it's going to be a very empty feeling and an empty life if you keep wishing everybody in the country could get a better kid. Everybody in the country, even up to do, everybody can get a better kid. So if you're constantly going to chase trying to get a better kid, I mean, it's going to be a very empty feeling, even if you are successful. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great lesson to learn throughout, and I think you're that is an awesome perspective because Lord knows and Tyler knows that I've been down that road where I've been pissed and ticked off about certain things of not getting somebody and. But then, but then I'll recover. I'll recover. You, you always have the, like, you're on the kid, and then, like, literally three weeks later, he has, like, seven D1 offers, and you're just like... Yeah, it's fine. You know, fine. that's good. You're, you know, you... No, it's fine. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I, I've learned to accept it. When you're younger and you're doing that stuff, it's like, what the hell am I doing? But, I mean, Smalls, if you'd been able to close Colin Gillespie a couple of years ago and beat out Villanova, like, you would have had a real... You know, I, that's a hell of a story, buddy. You had him on a visit and everything, and then Jay Wright just swoops in last minute and plucks him out from under your nose. Unbelievable. I'll tell you, you, something that is way better than Jay Wright, way better than the Villanova Wildcats, it's Staten Island, New York. TJ Tibbs has taken us to Staten Island for our city review tonight. Three restaurants, two night spots or bars, places you want to hang out, and one activity. Go ahead, hit it, Coach. All right, that was a good lead, by the way. And uh, so. Three restaurants I'm going to have to go with. Tommy's Tavern is definitely one. It's a place that uh, me and my fiance, anybody wants to go, we go after games. Great place, great food. Um, I'm going to also go with uh, Hobra. It's a it's a taco spot, uh, Mexican food spot. It's, it's, it's a great place. And then I'm going to go with uh, – I'm going to go with Ruddy and Dean's. Um, I'm St. Peter's High School alumni, and Danny Mills is an alumnus. And uh, it's his restaurant, Steaks. Um, it's a really good place. A little bit on the expensive side, so c- kind of three different levels of, of prices. Um, with that, nice spots, go Kettle Black. I'm not a big nice spot person at all. I don't drink alcohol, so I'm not really out that much. Um, but Kettle Black is a really good spot. Also has good food. And um, I'm going to go with – it just closed. It's around a 
corner from my house pretty much, but this place called Bootleg Mannings was was a it was a decent spot. Um, a lot of good, a lot of good mixture of people. And the last thing, one thing to do, you said. Yeah, one activity. I think anybody who comes to Staten Island has to take the Staten Island ferry. Um, and 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 just just to say you did, and just to realize that it's nice, um, but it's also a place where people every day commute. Like it's not like uh, it's not like being on a, like a cruise ship, um, <laughs> like people think it is when they get here. And it's also they're building like that downtown area. It's really nice. Uh, they were supposed to have the world's biggest Ferris wheel, but that kind of flopped. So uh, <laughs> so we have to get something else down there. TJ, if you have somebody and they come, you know, like, let's just say you got like a friend in town, they're not from New York City, and they say, like, we got to get pizza. I know that, like, the boroughs are a little bit different, but if you're getting pizza on Staten Island, where where are you taking people? Uh, so if you want a square slice, you got to go to Brothers Pizza. Uh, has the best squares. Brothers and L&B in Brooklyn are the best. Yeah, L&B. I've been to L&B. L&B is high, that place is high freaking level. It's whenever we play Brooklyn. Well, we played Brooklyn College this year and we won, and we we went to L&B after the game. Um, L&B is great. It's inside out pizza, and Brothers is more traditional square. Um, but also uh, uh, on Staten Island, you got like uh, Jimmy Max Pizza or um, Danino's Pizza Thin Crust. Danino's is really good. Uh, it got a good rate. Um, on Barstool. I forgot Panini Grill. I go there every Friday with my fiance. I'm I'm bugging out. I go there every Friday with my fiance. Well, pre-COVID times with my fiance and her parents. Go to Panini Grill. That's top three restaurants easily. I never got in a I never got in a Panini there, <laughs> but it's an awesome place. It's Panini Grill, but I don't know how the Paninis are at all. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I was going to say, L&B, it's funny that you, you gave a place like off Staten Island because, you know, I don't know if there's a big difference. I don't know if like the boroughs kind of like hunker down and talk about like their pizza spots are better or whatever, but we should start doing it. We've had a lot of New York guys on recently, Smalls, and we haven't really hit the pizza thing hard. I'm going to tell you this. When you get into New Yorkers and pizza in general, but Staten Islanders, it's like arguing back in 2000 with a 13-year-old girl about the Backstreet Boys in NSYNC. So people really are territorial with what pizza they go to. And, like, a lot of people are going to be mad and say Lee's Tavern, which is uh, a pizza pizza place on the other side of Staten Island. But I've actually never had Lee's Tavern pizza. And it's supposedly one of the best slices on Staten Island. But I've never had it as long as I've lived on Staten Island. I'm trying to think. We got it from a spot like... Pat and Joe's, Steve Joe, and Joe. Joe and Pat's. Joe and Pat's. That was, that was very good. But then I heard from actual New Yorkers that it was like, you know, from a New York slice, this is like a six. For someone who lived in Nashville, Tennessee for five years, the slice was a 25 out of 10. You know? I believe, yeah. But I think all, I think all Staten Island pizza, honestly, is if you're not from around here and you have this expectation about New York pizza, I think it's going to be great because I haven't really had great slices Anywhere, I'm really spoiled with bagels and and uh and pizza here. I can't get a good bagel once I leave here. I try not to eat bagels at all because it's just it's just way different. I don't know what anybody else in the world is doing without good bagels because the water, it's the, the tap water. water. Yeah, it's the water. <laughs> I don't know. They need to start making their, their bagels with like, but I don't know, Dasani or something like that. <laughs> Gotta get the water shift. Yeah. All right. Uh, 10 touches, next segment, sorry. Uh, 30-second rapid-fire question and answer. I got the first five. TJ, who's the funniest person you've ever worked with or coached or played with? J.C. Albano worked with assistant coach now and played with him too. Funny, intentionally funny or uh, unintentionally funny? 
he's both. Like, he's trying to be funny. He's hilarious, but he's very sarcastic. So just how he just acts is just hilarious. What's your worst basketball travel experience? Um, so when I was at NJIT, as ops and everything is always heightened when you're ops because travel is just everything. Uh, we took like a seven-day trip from Army to uh, UNH, New Hampshire, to Maine. And we won all three games, so that made it a lot better. But as far as the logistics and going three different hotels and all the meals and on the bus and then after beating Maine and then driving all the way back down and then having all the things to do, for me, it was just personally the worst basketball trip I've ever been on. By far. <laughs> By far. I love it. The bus trips are just they're just brutal sometimes. Like, it's just so brutal. Uh, it's, you know, we mentioned it's day 500 of the quarantine, so everybody's binging everything. What What's the most... I wouldn't say, like, what's the most recent thing you've binged, but, like, what's the last good thing you've binged over the last, like, month? Ozark. So, did you see – Smalls, did you finish season three? I have not. Oh, yeah. Took took me about a night and a half. Is it that good? It was that – I I like season two. I I, I liked one. All right, Ozark. Whatever, guys. I'm going to have to watch it. My my wife was like, we should watch Ozark, and I was, like, putting it off. But it's a great watch. I don't have anything else to do, so – uh, what was wondering, drugs like action? What, what more could you ask for? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What would you be doing if you weren't working in sports? Uh, running a, a high school. So uh, that, and I, I, I really want to do that. So uh, being either like a president or, or a, um, you know, principal of uh, like a K through twelve school, something like that. We get the kids from young, and they can go all the way up to twelfth grade. Who's the best player you ever faced or game planned for? Kevin Durant. Um, Pretty good. Yeah, he's, he's, not a bad player. Might have heard of him. He's all right. <laughs> um, no, played against him in the AU tournament. Um, I think when I was 16. Um, but honestly, I got to change that. It's Michael Beasley. Um, because when we were younger, he was really uh, – he actually showed up to the game we played against him um, as the buzzer went off in his flip-flops. And he was very upset when he looked across the way and seen our team and that we were playing that who he had to rush to the game to play against because we definitely weren't a team that should have been playing against him. Um, and he young, young Michael Beasley was unbelievable. Like eighth, like okay. eighth grade, ninth grade, Michael Beasley was like him and Nolan Smith. Like they, they were, uh, they were ridiculous. Like I, I, he's one guy that like, you know, when people say like, you know, are you surprised there's certain guys that, you know, grew up in the same, you know, cause I was a DC guy and like, you know, he was the same class as me. Not that we were in the same class, but like, I'll never understand why he wasn't like an NBA all-star. And I mean, I get it. Like there's some off the court stuff, but just in terms of like how good he was night in and night out in AAU in high school, like I don't know that I've ever seen anybody like that coming well, up. I think, he, I think he went to a, a tough fit. Um, you know, it's kind of like if, Mello would have went to the Pistons. Um, it would have been like he would have been good, but he wouldn't have been Carmelo Anthony superstar, at least not right away. There's, there wasn't a peg for him to do that. So he went to Miami with D Wade, and it's just in a time where, you know, you're not playing. The pace of games isn't like that. It isn't that small ball going on. So, And he was also, you know, like he, he had been to a bunch of high schools and like he was a tough kid in the sense that like he, he I don't want to say like he had ADD or whatever, but he always had like other interests. He always wanted to like have a good time. So like 
putting a kid who didn't really have a lot of money in Miami with a lot of money, like, and, and not having a, like you said, like the structure around him wasn't great. Like that, that's definitely one of the things too, but he was, Oh my God. Like Duran obviously was amazing. And he's just like a unicorn cause he was so different. But like Michael Beasley, I, I remember like in seventh grade, the guy was like just crushing high school dudes. Like it was, he was so good. All right, Smalls, we're done talking about DCAAU because oh. we can do that for hours, hours. Beasley played against the academy. If you could change one thing about college basketball, what would it be? Uh, Rules-wise, I mean, there's no reason why we shouldn't be playing quarters, but um, it's the transferring. Um, and not that kids shouldn't be able to transfer, but I'm starting to really question what college athletics is from a basketball standpoint because I got into coaching college basketball because of the impact that we could have on 18 to 24 year olds. It's hard to have that impact when we're solely just looking for one year solutions um, to help us win basketball games. Now that is a main part of our job, but it just makes me cringe when I think about consistently taking kids that you barely know just because they can play basketball um i'm even somebody that playing pickup um i've never put the best players on one one team um and i always rather play with guys that i knew than like the best guys in the gym um so that's kind of just like my makeup but the transfer uh, epidemic is a lot of things are going with that also 18 year old kids having to make you know big time decisions and but as coaches, we're just not allowing the generation of kids to fight through adversity and 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 build that that toughness and or we're just not being honest with them as a whole and they're getting all these expectations and then they get there and it's totally different. So that aspect of it is is totally disappointing. And and once they pass this rule, which don't get me wrong, I think kids should have the same options as like a tennis player. So um once they pass that rule, I mean we're only at the tip of the iceberg for what the transferring stuff is going to look like. Yeah. It's a great point. I think 700 plus undergrad names in the transfer portal right now. That's a, uh, that's a lot of people moving around and shaking. So what's your best ma- moment as a coach? Mm. It's probably my, the first graduation as a head coach. Um, that's when, um, I didn't contribute to their – obviously, I only had them for a year. Um, but um, feeling that I contributed to their education, not their, their diploma, but their overall education, um, really put me in a selfish mindset of that I really want to help kids get to this point. Um, and honestly, the two kids that, that graduated were kids that would uh, graduate. They had a great family structure. Like, you know, it wasn't like a – rags to riches story. They were expecting their family to graduate, but knowing that I still have a relationship with them and knowing that, um, like I said, they got a degree from CSI, but I helped contribute to their education and life. Uh, that was an extremely rewarding feeling and, um, it's going to be the best day every year in our program. What's your pregame routine? Uh, really just listen to music. Um, I used to listen to the same playlist as I did back in 2012 um and my family would say that I'm superstitious and I would just call it routine um 
So I did do that until um, I just got a new phone and had to re-put it together. So I just put it on shuffle. So I listened to a lot of music. Um, I will text message up until probably about 10 minutes before game time. Um, just to kind of, so I'm not overthinking about everything. Um, so when I'm in a locker room that doesn't have service, it, it kind of drives me crazy. Um, and the number one thing I have to do before I walk out on the court is uh, to text my fiance that I love her. And um, that's the number one ritual that we have. Man, what are a couple of those 2012 jams? I got to know. Love Lost by Trey Song. Okay. <laughs> Love Lost. Yeah. Trigger. Yep. Love Loss is a, is a number one thing I got to play. Um, 9 a.m. in Dallas is one by Drake. Um, and I, I listen to Sweet Caroline, too. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I listen you to start belting it out. Everyone's like, ah, oh, there he is. Coach Tibbs again. Sweet Caroline came. When we're home, my locker room is next to, like, the pool. So there'll be, like, a swim meet going on. And I'll have my headphones on, and I realize how loud I'm yelling. I've had a couple of uh, – I've been on Snapchat a couple of times with some kids in a pool. I don't understand why they have their phones in their pool. That seems a little bit dangerous. <laughs> What's your favorite and least favorite practice drill? Uh, least favorite practice drill is this box-out drill. Um, I just uh, – we didn't start doing it until this year. Being a guard mentality, you got to remember sometimes, like, some kids actually need to learn how to actually box out. Um, you, I didn't have to box out much when I played. I just floated to the basket and kind of cleaned up on any rebound. So that kind of affected my mentality. I hated box out drills because I never had to do it in a game. Um, so we do it now to just to start off with some physicality, but I just hate it. And most of the times I walk out of the gym and have somebody else run it because I think it's a waste of time. Um, and uh, my favorite drill is 11-man drill. Uh, uh, it's just a high, you know, High in intensity, high energy, the way we do it, the full court press uh, within it. So and I think it's, it's a really productive drill. Uh, you can really see if somebody's ready to go in the beginning of practice in 11-man drill. What's your best, like, bar or barbecue type of game? Darts, shuffleboard, something like that? What's that game? Uh, what's that game with the beanbag? Uh, cornhole. Cornhole. Oh, uh, yeah. Cornhole King. Cornhole. Yeah. Oh, we just had Cornhole King on uh, prior. Yeah, everybody's everybody's great at Cornhole. It's all these yeah, New no, Yorkers. No. Everybody thinks they're great at Cornhole until they play with an actual level like board, <laughs> right? Because I see people playing Cornhole on boards where you throw it anywhere and it either rolls up or rolls down. Like the board, it falls in the middle of the game. Um, we, we have one friend. We have one friend who is very much like he—he he is very good at cornhole. Like he is good, but he is very much like if the boards aren't perfect, if the distance is not perfect, then he doesn't care, and like the, it just doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like he just can't get his mindset in. He'll go walk over the board, like, and then if it's not good, then he's just not into it. But if it's like a real contest that he feels like, all right, this is worth my time, then he's very, very good. Oh yeah, I'm very. I picked it up last year at one of our uh, student athlete barbecues. I had no idea what it was. And um, it's kind of like, to me, I compare it to basketball. Uh, I wish I wish people played basketball at barbecues um, because you could talk a little smack and and do. Like I said, I don't drink, so I've never played beer pong. I've only taken like celebrity shots, and I've never, I've never even made a shot, and I was sober. It doesn't make any sense. Um, but uh, yeah, so I kind of I kind of treat that as like my basketball moment. You could talk a little junk and. 
and kind of hit some of these shots. And this and this strategy to it as well, too. So that that's cool. Hey, we'll see. Obviously, it was postponed this Final Four, but, uh, you know, we're putting together coaches decathlon, and they'll be at the next Final Four. So you all have to be there, and your name's going to be on a 64-team bracket list. So good luck. I'm trying to get like you, Smalls, at the Final Four. (laughs) (laughs) Two podcast guests we need to have on. Uh, I would say Ryan Hyland. Don Jay, uh, he has done an incredible job and continues to do an incredible job. And uh, and I would say John Alisi, uh, who I work for at Baruch. Um, and that's just a shout to the CUNY guys, too, because there's amazing coaches in there. And CUNY doesn't get a good national rep or regional rep. But uh, uh, we have great coaches in that league. And um, those two are two of the best. All right, last segment from us, parting shots. Same two questions to every guest. I, as always, have the first one. TJ, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Uh, it's kind of tied with two things. One is keep the main thing the main thing. And uh, and the other is um, uh, when you make your resume uh, to make sure it shows what you created and not what you did, um, not what you executed. And that was the best professional advice that I've ever gotten, received. And I thought it was just like poetic. Um, and I really try to look at that as far as uh, being the CEO of the program and not being a head coach. And what are we creating all the time, whether it's social media or whether it's programs for guys to learn how to interview, um, how to tie a tie, um, when to button your suit jacket and when to unbutton it. Um, uh, we sit down and we learn how to, which fork is which is you use, is the salad fork, is the dinner fork. Um, so what are we creating? Uh, how much value am I creating for the people in the organization? Um, all the way down to the managers. Um, you know, we, we zoom with the managers and make sure that they're, they're speaking to Ashton Pills from Kansas, who's doing all these great manager things for, for kids and making sure they're connected. And keeping the main thing, the main thing is, is just don't forget. You want to do all these things and have all these interests, but don't forget who exactly you are and, and don't change from that. Yeah, I do want to say I'm, I'm actually glad you mentioned that. I had written it down, and I, I wasn't I wasn't really paying attention. But Ashton Pills, I, I don't know her. Uh, I think she works for Kansas basketball. I know she's like affiliated with Rising Coaches, but she has done. You know, they're doing these Zoom conferences, and for people that listen to our show, especially if you're a manager or you're trying to get in as a Dober or a GA, she has done like all these cool kind of like networking things on Zoom about like. You know, I, I can't say that I've attended any of them. I don't know that they want like the, you know, 31 year old washed up bearded guy in the like, hey, how do you become a GA? But I have seen them on Twitter and she's had a ton of really good people in there. So I think it's just at Ashton Pills on, on Twitter. But if you are, you know, looking to break into the business, it's good. I'm glad you reminded me of that, TJ. Yeah, cause she, she's really good. She's she's uh, I just kind of met her, you know, virtually Um maybe a couple of weeks ago and I've been trying to reach out to different people and talk to people. And I'm always available to talk to, to anybody, especially during these times where we're around. Uh, I try to want to give back to anybody because um, I think that's what we should do. But she has uh, my manager and one of my kids who's going to be a senior has been a part of some of the things that she has done and they have nothing but great things to say about that. All right. Face to face with your 24 year old self. What are you telling that person? Slow down. Just Let's slow down. Um, everything is not going to happen right now. It doesn't need to happen right now. And uh, you need to stop and just enjoy everything that's that's around you. Um, 
work is not the most important thing in life. We're, you know, you're in this profession because it doesn't feel like work. Um, so, you know, don't drive yourself crazy because you think that's what the top person in your profession is doing. Um, the only person you should be chasing is yourself every day and not the ghost of people that you don't even know and you don't even know if they're happy or, or what their deal is. And, um, you know, just continue to be you. Um, cause at 24, I thought I had to be something for other people to want me to coach. Cause I didn't know anybody in coaching. So just be you and you'll be fine and you'll get where you want to get, um, by doing that. Definitely good advice. Uh, if you do want to reach out to TJ, just real easy on Twitter at TJ Tibbs, T-I-B-B-S. Uh, and TJ, you know, I, I say this a lot, but we, we get recommendations of people to have on the show and, and people tell us like kind of who fits our vibe. And I, I definitely feel like I don't even know who recommended you. I, I, you know, it's probably through text messages, but uh, really, a, really did get our vibe. I think this is the type of interview that we want to have where we, you know, I, I, I make jokes about it all the time. Like, we don't really care if you run a two, three zone out of timeouts with like two minutes and 10 seconds to go in the second half. Like, it's not really what we're all about. And I, I, I feel like what you've said to us tonight over the last hour and stuff has been, you know, great advice for people who do want to coach and, and especially former players too, that are just kind of like, ah, you know, it'll be easy, you know, cause it's not, it's just not easy. And it's one thing that we've learned. So I, I appreciate you coming on. And like I said, at TJ Tibbs on Twitter and, you know, we're excited to follow you into the division two journey. Smalls has turned me into a division two junkie for sure. I'm, I'm very excited to see how you guys do in the ECC. And like I said, I appreciate the time and it, it was a lot of fun for us. Yeah. I appreciate you guys having me. Like I said, you guys have a great show. You've been consistent. Um, definitely follow from afar. And then once I had a couple of people that I knew that were on, you know, followed it a little bit uh, closely and um, you know, we're definitely looking forward to being the best we can be and hopefully being up there with the Jeffersons. <laughs> Not to move up with the Jefferson. <laughs> All right, TJ. We'll talk soon, buddy.